Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast. You are now listening to Season 7 of the show. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. I've got some exciting news for you. Legally Speaking Podcast is hitting the road and heading to ClioCon 2023 in Nashville from October the 9th to the 10th. Imagine two days jam-packed with game-changing insights, networking opportunities, and the chance to connect with legal minds from around the globe. Whether you're an attorney, paralegal, or just someone passionate about the world of law, this conference is for you. So mark your calendars and join us at ClioCon 2023 and see you in Nashville. This week, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by the wonderful Sana Sadiq. Sana is a private family law solicitor and court advocate. In August 2022, Sana launched her practice, Collective Law Solicitors Limited. Deciding change was needed in the legal profession. Sana is determined to build a firm where there's a balanced environment for her team, focusing on output rather than logging hours. Sana is also passionate about inclusion and diversity, playing an active role as an EDI committee member for the Birmingham Solicitors Group. Sana is a two-time legal awards finalist in 2019, but a legal professional of the year and in 2020 for individuals showing excellence in legal services. In 2021, she was one of three finalists for Muslim Professional Women of the Year and is also the winner of the Phoenix She Has No Limits Award. Zana kickstarted 2023 as a finalist for the Young Business Person of the Year and Collective Law Solicitors was winner of Divorce Law Firm of the Year 2023, part of the SME Awards. Wow, so a very warm welcome, Zana. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure having you on the show. And before we dive into all your amazing projects, experiences to date, we do have a customary icebreaker question here on the Legally Speaking podcast, which is, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being very real, what would you rate the hit TV series Suits in terms of its reality of the law, if you've seen it? Oh, I've definitely seen it. I've probably watched it a bit too many times. (laughs) (laughs) From entertainment value, I absolutely love it. I can't deny that. From a reality perspective, I would have to say maybe a two. <laughs> okay, fairly, fairly justified. Entertainment high, actual reality yeah. low. That's probably normal TV in terms of reality. <laughs> and with that, we shall move swiftly on. So to begin with, Sana, would you mind telling our listeners a bit about your background and career journey? Sure. So I've been working in law for about 10 years in total. I've been qualified as a solicitor for six years. I've worked at a few different law firms across my career journey, really. I would say about three or four different law firms. Made it all the way up the chain, up to being offered partnership, and then decided last year that, in fact, I wanted to start something of my own. So that's when I launched my own practice specializing in family law. Yeah, and I I have to say, I genuinely love being a family lawyer. I know there's quite a few people out there that unfortunately, as time goes by, they start to feel a bit unrewarded with with the whole process of how the the legal system can be and they start to to regret their choices in life. But um, yeah, I definitely enjoy what I do and I wouldn't change it for anything. And I can hear that passion oozing in your voice as well. And I always say, follow your passions. And clearly you you have, and you touched on it there, but I want to dive a little bit deeper um, because you are, as you say, a, a private family lawyer solicitor and a court advocate. So would you mind explaining in a bit more detail the areas of family law you specifically specialize in? 
Yeah, sure. So I specialize in family law, which is covered on a private basis. So anything for individuals in terms of divorce, financial separation of assets, any sorts of child arrangements matter, whether that's to do with securing custody or access to a child or children. Um, international relocation matters if one parent wanted to move abroad potentially with a child and the impact that would have on the other parent or the family unit. Prenups, postnups, separation agreements, cohabitation agreements. Those are the sorts of topics that I would cover as a family lawyer. So a lot in in, in short, <laughs> is a lot of diversity there in terms of uh, what what it. comes under the umbrella. So thank you for being so so thorough. I want to talk about a case, actually, if I may. One of the most notable cases, which involved an international uh, surrogacy matter, and went, I believe, to the High Court in 2019. So. Can you discuss um, the outcome or the precedent uh, resulting from that case? So surrogacy is a very complicated and niche area of law. And I think the law is constantly changing, especially within the UK, in terms of how surrogacy is perceived and how to actually go about the whole process. I mean, there's a couple of factors that anyone dealing with a surrogacy matter needs to consider, especially from a parental point of view, which is the fact that the surrogate mother isn't automatically classified as the mother of the child, even after the surrogacy arrangement has taken place. So they still actually have to apply to court to acquire those rights. Now, that's something which is being reviewed by the courts and is subject to change. And it will be a very, very welcome change once it's, you know, confirmed and and gone wide wide scale in that respect. But at the moment, it's still something which is a little bit of a grey area, especially here in the UK. But there's many cases now where surrogacy matters are going through the courts. The process is extremely complicated and difficult. And it's a very emotional process as well for the parent for the surrogate parents especially who are up on one hand trying to enjoy this moment of welcoming a new child into their family but at the same time have to immediately initiate court proceedings and deal with the legalities of the process so yeah it's definitely an area which is changing um, and being revised a lot with recent case law and hopefully the process will become a lot more smoother and more streamlined yeah, fingers crossed for that. And again, thank you for, for sharing that and educating our listeners um, more on a very important topic. Um, and sticking with, you know, important topics and, and feelings, you know, how do you navigate the emotional and sensitive nature of your work, family law, particularly cases that are concerning, you know, divorce and, and children? Yeah, I think it's one of those things where the human touch really makes a huge amount of difference. I think as a family lawyer, the skills that you need are very different to any other aspect of of legal work. It's very, very different to transactional areas of of legal work. Um, You definitely have to be able to connect and build a relationship with the client that you're speaking to as a family lawyer, because they don't necessarily want you to go into the ins and outs of all the legal terms and the legal processes and so on. When they come to you for advice, they really just need somebody who's able and willing to listen to them to help them unpick the complexity of the situation that they're going through, which is a very traumatic time for them most of the time because they've ended up in a situation which they never thought they would be in, having or dealing with a family breakdown or some sort of a marital conflict. Um, And it can be very emotional for them to have to come and talk to a complete stranger 
about these personal matters. So I think as a family lawyer, the most important thing is maybe in actual fact, put the law to a side for the very initial discussions and just have a very human and frank conversation with the person you're trying to assist and bring the law and the legal aspects into it slightly afterwards. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I talk about this a lot on online that we're, it's no longer this B2B or B2C it's H to H, it's human to human connection. And, and that is so important, particularly in this area of law that, that you are covering, you know, having that empathy, being there and, and genuinely plugged in and listening and, you know, being because ultimately knowing the law is, 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 is your job. But I think building that relationship and that trust and then really trusting you, the more that you can meet them where they're at on a human level, I think the far greater um, the chances of building and fostering a, a great working relationship and great outcome for your, for your clients. So thank you for sharing that. We've touched on it previously, but we want to talk about it more because it's super exciting that in August 2022, you did launch your practice. So Collective Law Solicitors, belated congratulations. What motivated you to strive and build particularly a more diverse and inclusive law firm? I think it was really just an accumulation of my own experiences working within law over the years. Um, I had always assumed that partnership was my end goal. Um, And it wasn't really something I had even given much second thought to. It was just pre-programmed in my brain from the outset of my career that the end goal is partnership. Um, So as I've climbed the career ladder over the years and finally reached that stage of, of gaining an offer of partnership, it just didn't feel how I expected it to feel. It felt a little bit more of an anticlimax, to be honest with you. And for me, that was purely because I felt that what I really wanted to achieve was far bigger than what I could really do as a partner within another law firm. Because the reality of being a partner is you're often not going to be the only partner in that firm. So you have to be able to reach decisions and agreements with with the panel of of directors or partners connected to the firm. And inevitably, that firm will already have an existing strategy or brand value, or their ethos and principles are already set in stone. So you're really joining their business to further enhance their principles and their ethics and what they want to achieve. But what I wanted to do was to create something in my own vision. It sounds a little bit selfish. But I didn't really want to spend the next 10, 15 years of my life, let alone my career, building someone else's business with them. There's nothing wrong with becoming a partner in a law firm. It's, it's such an amazing and huge milestone for anyone to, to reach. But for me, that was just a turning point in my career and life where I realized that actually I just assumed that this was the end goal for me because that's all I had ever really been taught you know, from university level, LPC, any sort of career education we had along the way whilst being a student, student, it, they never really covered any other options. So now I was at a point where I could actually think for myself, well, forget anything else that someone has told me. What are the other options? Are there other options? And how would those potentially suit my needs better and allow me to live a life and pursue a career all on my own terms? And quite frankly, have it all. <laughs> yeah. And why shouldn't you have it all? You know, and, you know, I, I, I don't think it is selfish. You know, following your passions is something we should encourage more to do. 
Um, you know, if it feels right and, you know, you took that brave step of turning an idea into a business, which obviously now is absolutely flourishing. So, yeah, I, I love that that journey and, and, and that story and that wisdom that you, you, you shared. Let's stick with your firm then, because, um, you know, Collective Law Solicitors operates in a very simple principle, working together to make a difference. So would you mind explaining a bit more about the meaning behind that? Yeah, I mean, it's literally as it says, my aim when I launched Collective Law Solicitors was really just to keep things completely simple. I genuinely felt that there wasn't a need to complicate legal services, which has felt traditionally the way that many law firms have adopted the approach of practicing law and just convoluted the whole process for really very little purpose, to be honest, it's almost as if if you're in the legal profession, just by virtue of the complexities of law, you have to complicate everything. And I really felt that building a law firm should just be simple, simple for everyone involved in the business, simple for everyone that needs to engage in our services. So it's far less focused on billing and logging time and counting for every single transaction or conversation that you have with a client and it's much more focused on the human approach just making sure we build a rapport with anyone that requires our services and if a time come if a situation comes our way where it's not a a circumstance that we can help our client with for whatever reason we can just signpost them elsewhere make sure that ultimately they have access to the help that they need Um, so we're very focused on being a human law firm and being there to help others. And that's what I love about your firm. And I love, again, about the sort of simplicity um, aspect. You know, we all know the sort of KISS principle in terms of keep it simple, stupid. But also, you know, I talk about this a lot on the show. It's better to be clear than it is to be clever sometimes. And using legalese or overcomplicating, overwhelming clients can sometimes have a detrimental impact and actually lose that level of trust. And, you know, when you confuse people, you ultimately lose people. So I just love that whole principle and the, and the DNA and fabric of what the firm, uh, firm is built around. So let's talk a little bit more about sort of the ever-changing working world and things that may come with that. Talk to us about the four-day work week, because I know many business um, have been trialing this, would love to try it, but the fear of reducing the work week and operating hours, a client reaches you is too much. What made you take the leap and tell us more about your experience? Yeah, so again, I would say it really stems from my own experience whilst I was employed working for other law firms. And naturally, as a lawyer, we work really long hours, regardless of what field of law you work in. The workload is intense and it's a very emotionally draining job to have. So focusing on a work-life balance is crucial, but it's definitely easier said than done. And I think over the years in my career, I have worked such extensively long hours at times, and I've really struggled to switch off, especially as a family lawyer, when you're dealing with very emotive cases. I, I took the approach that when I launched Collective Law Solicitors, all the things which would have been beneficial for me as I was enduring my career and, and climbing the career ladder as such, all those things I wanted to really try and incorporate into Collective Law Solicitors from the outset. There was always this little bit of hesitation thinking, well, as a new business startup, can you really afford to do things like this and operate on a four-day week? Will you end up losing more business? Will it de- 
deter clients from contacting us and using us as a law firm compared to another law firm, which may be able to give them assistance five days a week or even six days a week for some law firms. But I realized that, to be honest, there was a reason I launched Collective Law Solicitors and I had to stay true to that reason and constantly keep that in mind because if I kept wavering and giving up and conceding on all these other little aspects which I genuinely feel were beneficial then I'll end up just being another law firm to add to the mix which defeats the whole point so for me it's really about what would have worked best what's beneficial from a work-life balance and a health perspective so I can really be the best that I can be as a lawyer to perform the best for my clients and give them the best level of service when I am dealing with them and that's not to say that we leave clients in the lurch when we're not working one day in the week. You know, we don't simply ignore all their phone calls um, or disregard emergency matters. There are safety nets and other measures in place to make sure that clients are taken care of. It's just done in a way which allows us as the lawyers, as the team behind the business to also actually focus on us as humans as well and gain some balance. And it's so important and, and what an inspiring thing to to sort of openly share and talk about because all these little things are huge. Little touches are big touches. And like you say, why do you just want to, you know, follow the mold? You know, actually be a pioneer, stick to things from your own personal experiences you would like to change or develop and nurture in your own environment, in your own way. So absolutely. And of course, you know, as you go through your journey, you'll get to know your clients who will know the way that you work and the fact that you also have safeguard measures as well. It's sort of the best both but I always say you can't pour from an empty cup it's not selfish putting yourself first the better you are the better you can provide for your clients and the service you can give so absolutely and congratulations on making that a success so let's switch from sort of you know the working kind of week to technology because how important has tech been in the success of your business where would you place it in terms of must-haves when thinking about starting a firm and what does your tech stack look like and what particular do you use for cases and um, for for instance you know with Clio what do you use them for? Yeah sure so for me as a startup tech was one of those big factors that I had to give a lot of consideration to because on one hand I could see the importance and the value it would bring to a new business but as a startup inevitably I also have to budget and assess the cost element yeah so it's getting the balance right really overall um, and everyone's starting position will be different but for me it was a non-negotiable that I needed to have a certain amount of tech to make sure that the business was able to run in a very effective manner if nothing else simply to be effective was the most important thing there's nothing worse than trying to help someone in their time of need as a client, but then having to run around and do 10 different steps of processes just to complete one action, when really you could save all that time, save the worry for yourself and be able to help your potential client far sooner. So investing in tech was really important from that perspective for me. And it was also crucial that I had measures in place that would be able to swiftly communicate with my clients and be able to pass confidential documents back and forth, especially when dealing with family law, when we often have birth certificates or marriage certificates and things which need to be um, sent back and forth between the lawyers and the clients or court orders and applications. And especially since COVID, where many of my clients aren't actually local to where my office is based in Birmingham, we currently have clients all over from Leicester to Leeds, 
London and so on. So it's really important, again, from a tech perspective to have a secure system in place, which will put everyone's mind at ease, but again, be able to efficiently continue and allow that process of work to be undertaken. So for me, using Clio has been the best investment that I've made, to be honest. It's allowed me to do all of that right from the very outset of building my business to make sure all the safety measures are in place, but also being able to effectively communicate with my clients, send documents securely back and forth, and really keep them in the loop without any delay, to be honest. It's literally instant and it's secure and it puts the client's mind at ease as well, that they're not worried about having to put confidential documents in the post or wait for postal delays, especially with, with the backlogs of the post and everything with the strikes that we faced recently, having an online system where you can just literally operate your entire business through that has been fantastic. Yeah, no, and I'm just loving hearing sort of, you know, how much you do, um, you know, really rely on tech and believe it is super helpful. And obviously what Clio does for you, for you and for many other firms is, is fantastic. And like you say, the end goal is, ensuring your clients feel you know, confident and they can get a safe night's sleep at night, knowing important documents are safe and can be with them in record speed. So absolutely love that. And thank you so much um, for sharing that really important learns for other people who might be thinking about setting up a firm and technology or all those currently in a firm and thinking about, well, maybe we should start thinking about using platforms like, like Clio. So you touched on um, COVID. So since the pandemic, there has been an emergence of solicitors leaving their existing firms to start their own firm. What do you think has been the biggest trigger for this? I think it really comes down to how well or how well they haven't been able to adapt to change since yeah. COVID um, or even during COVID, to be honest. And I know for me, COVID itself was probably the biggest eye opener. And had it not been for the pandemic, I don't know if I would have necessarily even considered launching my own practice, the idea of it may not have even come into my mind, to be honest. But because I struggled so much throughout COVID, again, for me personally, I was working at firms where I was still expected to come in and be office-based and they hadn't adapted necessarily to working from home culture. Many firms eventually adapted to working from home towards the end of the pandemic. And then as soon as all the rules were lifted, it was directed, you know, everyone's back into the office, no exemptions. And it's just really difficult, I think, when you get used to a completely different way of work and life and you realise that things can actually be done in a very effective way, whilst also allowing so much freedom and flexibility as a worker, it really opens your eye up to how much more time can be saved without the commute, without the formalities of just having to be present, sitting at your desk in an office purely just to be seen nine to five regardless of what you're doing or what you're not doing during that time. And for me, it was much more focused on output and productivity. And as a manager within the law firms I was working at, I know that was something really important to me whilst I was overseeing my team um, and, and, and the staff that um, I was supervising to focus much more on what are they actually achieving during the time that they're in the office rather than how early did they turn up today or how late are they staying today? So again, that was a huge factor for me because after COVID, I just really got fed up with traveling back and forth to the office all the time. Yeah, I personally prefer working in the office, to be completely honest with you. I like that separation um, from work and home, but I want the freedom 
to pick and choose when I want to do it that way. Yeah, and that's, you know, why shouldn't you? And, you know, I always got taught by one of my mentors very early. It's, it's not the quantity of the hours you work. It's the value you bring to each hour. And I think, you know, you, you've really t- touched on that because presenteeism and just showing up for the sake of it sat at your desk, you know, if you're not being productive or, you know, you've had to go on a really long commute and you're stressed and you get to your desk and, you know, you're actually your overall well-being and your happiness, you know, it, it affects things and can help, um, ha- well, has impacts on productivity. Time for a short break from the show. Are you looking for a way to get your firm working more efficiently and profitably while ensuring a better work-life balance for your team? Well, if you haven't considered our sponsor, Clio, I'm here to strongly recommend that you do. I absolutely love working with Clio. Not only is it the world's leading legal practice management and legal client relationship management software, it also has a really solid core mission to transform the legal experience for all, something I personally support. What sets Clio apart for me, it's their dedication to customer success and support. There are lots of legal softwares out there, but I know from talking to Clio users that their support offering is miles ahead of the rest with their 24-5 availability via email, in-app chat, and over the phone. Yes, you can actually call in and speak to someone. Clio is also the G2 crowd leader in legal practice management in comparison to 130 legal practice management softwares and has been for the last 14 consecutive quarters. G2 Crowd is the world's leading business solutions review website. You can check Clio's full list of features and pricing at www.clio.com forward slash legally dash speaking. That's www.clio.com forward slash legally dash speaking. Now back to the show. So let's go back to your firm, entrepreneurial life, entrepreneurship. Anyone who says it's easy is, in my opinion, probably telling a couple of fibs. You know, there are a few challenges along the way. So in hindsight, are there any lessons you've learned in terms of running your business? Anything you would have changed or anything you perhaps wouldn't have done that you chose to do originally? Oh, that's a tough one, to be honest. So collective law is just under a year old at the moment. So it's still very early days for us at the moment. I think there's been a lot of things which have been a complete eye opener. So regardless of how much research I did before (laughs) opening collective law, I think I was literally so intent on researching every single factor that I could possibly consider that might be necessary when launching a law firm. But to be honest, it all goes straight out the window because you, no matter how much you prepare or research, you cannot predict what's going to happen when you actually launch a business. It's just the nature of business. It's the way it is. So you can be prepared to some extent. But unfortunately, the reality is whether we like it or not, it's learning as you go. And you are the guinea pig now. You are the test model. I don't think there's anything which comes to mind which I've really regretted since I've launched Collective Law or any drastic mistakes that I've made which I wish I had known a little bit more about beforehand thankfully but yeah I think things to factor into consideration is definitely what's important in terms of brand value what is it that you want to stand for as a business and what things will help you achieve that so for example tech 
even, you know, is that going to be something which will make or break your business from an investment point of view, even? There's certain things that you know from the very outset, they will help you to be able to streamline your business and conduct business in a much more effective and professional manner. And there's other things which may seem like fun, but may not necessarily add any value or worth to the business. And these are things that you have to really weigh up. So I know for Collective Law, we had a really nice launch party when we first opened last year. And yes, it came at a lot of cost, but it was something which was really important for me to take that step back and actually celebrate the fact that I was opening a business. It was a huge milestone for me as a person, regardless of being a lawyer and being a professional, you know, being a young Asian Muslim woman dealing with a very complicated area of law, which is often frowned upon within Asian communities to then say, hey, I'm here. I'm Asian and I'm going to be talking about divorce, whether the Asian communities like it or not. And I'm here to share that knowledge and information. It was important for me to spend that cost and really be visible and seen out there as I launched the business. But for some businesses, it may not be worthwhile. So weighing up that cost balance is what I would say is crucial before you make any decisions. Yeah. And I always talk about cost of inaction. You know, what would be the cost of not taking action on something for your business, rather than strictly focusing on the return on investment, which a lot of people focus on, which of course is important, but COI, in my opinion, is also very, very important. So you have previously spoken about the lack of diversity in the legal profession, having often been one of the only non-white lawyers, the only female lawyer, and the only lawyer visibly different by virtue of wearing a headscarf. What challenges have you faced as a result of being one of the visible differences? To be honest, I faced so many struggles whilst I was employed. Um, and I'm really pleased to see how much the legal industry is changing now. Finally, it's long overdue. There's still a long way to go inevitably. But the fact that change is now finally starting to take place, and there's much more open discussions about diversity and inclusion within the workplace, that's really, really inspiring. And I'm really happy to see that. But for me, as I started off about 10 years ago, it was a very, very different world, you know, working in law as a young Asian female Muslim. I, I think I started off as a receptionist, to be completely honest. That was the first job I had within a law firm. And then I progressed from there up to becoming a paralegal. And, you know, I've worked in some really big law firms. And the things that I struggled with at the very early days was management even asking me if I was comfortable to speak in English to the clients or if I had a preferred dialect you know just things which I look back on and I just think how ridiculous you know how naive and how silly but these were the realities of working in law 10 odd years ago um, it was just assumed that if you looked different you would only be able to cater to potential clientele within your particular religious scope or your cultural beliefs and you weren't capable of speaking to anyone else. I was often sort of kept away deliberately from higher net worth potential clients and deliberately only given certain case matters to work on, which were fairly low in value. And the clients would often in some way or another identify with myself, either from a religious or cultural view. So there was this mindset that as an Asian, you deal with Asian clients and you're not able to deal with anyone else. 
and we won't trust you with any of the lucrative work. So you're there to sort of tick a box and show that they are employing people from ethnic backgrounds, but there was definitely no quality or substance behind what was happening within, within those law firms and their structures and their internal policies. But as time has gone by, as I've progressed in my career, thankfully things have changed a lot. There's still difficulties um, which ethnic minorities do face within the legal sector, and that's for sure there's still so much more work that needs to be done. But thankfully, it's progressed a lot more than it had done when I first started out, and it's a much more diverse and inclusion industry to work in now. Um, despite far more work still needing to be done. No, and, and thank you for sharing very openly your your journey. And I, I agree there's work to be done, but I, I do also want to, you know, credit previous guests we've had on the show, President of the Law Society, Stephanie Boyce, you know, the immediate past chair, and obviously the current president, Lubna, who's doing fantastic work to really make this the absolute paramount importance to ensure that the legal profession is absolutely more diverse and inclusive. So I know particularly at uh, Collective Law Solicitors, you have initiative strategies that you've implemented to ensure that everyone is accepted and value. And obviously, you, you really do champion diversity and inclusion. In your experience, how does a diverse and inclusive law firm positively impact the work environment and the quality of legal services provided? Yeah, in my opinion, it just makes everyone happier. It's as simple as that. It allows everyone to turn up to work, whether they're working from the office or from home, wherever they are, they're attending in their work capacity and they're comfortable, they're happy, they can feel like themselves. They don't have to sort of, how I used to say in the past when I was employed at times, I used to get out of the car in the car park and think, okay, work mode on now. You know, it was almost as if leave my own personality behind, put my game face on as I walk through those office doors. And that's something I really hated. I didn't like having to leave my identity behind and have this separate identity for me as a person and then me as a lawyer. So I really want to encourage um, and champion everyone to be able to work in a way which is the most comfortable for them. And that's going to be different for everyone. And that's the most important thing. There's no one set rule or policy which is going to be suitable for everyone. So it's really about genuinely embracing that concept and being able to allow everyone to be their true selves in the workplace so they can be authentic as a person and as a lawyer. And I genuinely believe that when they're able to do that, that's when they are able to perform to their best ability. So it's a win-win situation for everyone involved. Really well said, and I couldn't have put it any better myself and just absolutely agree. If you put people in an environment where they can thrive and they feel valued, seen, heard and safe, then, you know, you stand a very, very good chance of absolutely not only having a great, lovely place to work, but your productivity levels, your output levels, your client satisfaction levels, all of that, your profit value and profits all going up, yeah. up and up. But Tana, you are a bit of a superwoman because despite running a very busy law firm, you also somehow make time to lead and drive equity, diversity, inclusion within the legal space that we've been talking about from being a committee member to um, at the Birmingham Solicitors Group to an NRG mentor. So why is this so important to you and why are those particular organizations really close to you? Yeah, so for me, again, it all comes back down to my own experiences. So I know how much I struggled breaking into the legal industry as someone who was different in terms of appearance, dress code from a religious and cultural factor as well. 
And it's really important to me now that I've achieved, in my opinion, my level of success, that I can look back and actually help others now along their journey and along their career pathway so that I can help hopefully help others to ensure that they can climb that ladder as well in in the best way possible and they don't hopefully have to face as many uphill battles or struggles as I did but sometimes having that mentor or having someone that's there to give you that guidance is what's needed even things like mentorship wasn't really something that was ever discussed you know 10 years ago when I started my career it was a very isolating way of working in law because there were very limited role models for me to look up to. There were very limited people that were in visible positions of leadership or authority that I could aspire to be like. So I had to be the person that I wanted to be in the legal sector. So my aim now is to be able to hold the door open for others who, who are following in behind me, but also being able to really share that insight and knowledge and experience with others so that they can learn from my mistakes or my pitfalls or my struggles and hopefully navigate those struggles in a slightly different, if not better way. So that's why I feel that mentoring is really, really crucial and something which I will always make sure I'm able to set aside some quality time to focus on aside from working on the business. And EDI, with the Birmingham Solicitors Group, being based in Birmingham myself, it's really important that I focus on homegrown initiatives and the Birmingham Solicitors Group is a organization which focuses on connecting junior lawyers. And it's it's as simple as that, to be honest. It's all about building connections, networking, having a setting where things can be done in a very casual manner. There's no formality to it. We're literally just hosting events every, usually every month or every other month and really just connecting people from the legal industry so everyone has the opportunity to widen their circles really to make connections and to make friendships even with others that they may not necessarily come across in their day-to-day working life but who could be really important to them as allies just as someone who could mentor them or just someone to genuinely connect with and have a good time with yeah and again really really well said and so many things that i stand for and and, and champion about the value of networking obviously your network is your net worth it's well known the value of mentorship we talk a lot about that on the show attending events making that connection but also you you know i always say you know once you reach teach you know you're sending the elevator back down you're helping others you know supporting others uplifting others so they don't have to necessarily go through some of the challenges that, that you did and i think that's admirable particularly on top of obviously running a business and having your own personal life and everything else. So it's really important. And it's obviously important enough to you and your values to, to dedicate that time. So uh, absolutely commend you for that impressive work. Um, sticking with impressive work, um, you are very active on social media and do a very good job of that, particularly on LinkedIn. So you show the roses and the thorns, which is a breath of fresh air. Why and how has social media impacted the success of your firm? Yeah, so for me, I definitely believe that social media should be used as a tool to showcase the highs and the lows. That's essential for me. And I think, again, it's really easy to get swept up with social media and endless scrolling and constantly seeing this picture perfect lifestyle of people online where you end up comparing yourself either on a personal or professional business level thinking that you're not doing as well or anywhere near as well as someone else because all you see on social media is how perfect everything is you know 
one minute you see someone's launched a business and the next week they're earning millions of pounds and it, it, it's surreal you know but many times what you forget to realize is the story and the context that fills that gap in the middle of how these dots are connected how that journey progressed how you how that particular person went from one milestone to the next so i really focus on showing the highs and the lows to give people that perspective and to show that success can be achieved whatever your dreams and goals are but there's a journey that has to be followed to achieve that and you can't achieve it without that journey so whether we want to highlight the lows or disregard them they are still there it's part and parcel of, of any career path or any journey so we have to factor that in but social media for me has been crucial in terms of building collective law because i genuinely believe that people don't come to collective law solicitors just because they've come across collective law solicitors by name online or seeing our webpage or coming by our office. They choose to instruct us as a law firm compared to the hundreds of other law firms out there that can deal with family law because of what we bring to the table. And that's because they're able to build a connection with me as the director, as the main lawyer of the law firm through social media and online. And they can see the face behind the company, the person behind the business, and that's especially important in family law because people want to connect to the lawyer that they're sharing their deepest, darkest, difficult situations with. So social media has been an essential part of growing the business from that sort of personal branding perspective. And I genuinely don't think we could have even launched or got collective law solicitors on the map without having that social media awareness and impact. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're not visible, you're invisible in this online world. And, and folks, LinkedIn, a lot of these platforms are free. So, you know, they want you to start posting content. You do a fabulous job. You've built an excellent personal brand. And you're right. You're building a connection. People coming to you, they're buying into you. They trust you because you're being very open. And I know in a, a recent LinkedIn post, it builds on what you're saying, really. You share three worries and three achievements since starting your business. And you know, just, just build on that because you talked a lot about the journey and, you know, sometimes it's very vanity focused and it's all, you know, the successes, but why did you feel the need specifically for that post to post the positives and negatives alongside? I think when I post anything on social media, it's literally based on how I'm feeling at that particular time. Yeah. So it's very raw and it's very real. So I think that particular week I was in one of those sort of comparative cycles where I was seeing all this content on social media, people that had started businesses at a similar time to me who are now posting about generating so much profit or achieving such a degree of income or achieving certain milestones and successes, which are great. Um, but I wasn't there. I wasn't reaching those same milestones. And I started to compare myself a little bit too much to those people and to those businesses thinking, well, our businesses are at the same sort of career growth stage where just coming up to the one year mark of trading. How come they've achieved this and I haven't? Or how come they're making more profit than I am or generating more income for themselves than I am? And I realized that these aren't the metrics that I had in mind when I launched Collective Law Solicitors. So why am I now getting stuck in this rut of suddenly comparing myself to these metrics, which didn't mean anything to me before? My metrics of success are very, very different. So I have to regain that perspective and remind myself of what's important to me. What was my why behind starting Collective Law Solicitors? What was the end goal I wanted to achieve through the business? And for me, 
profit and income streams doesn't really factor into that at all. It's necessary, inevitably, as part of business, you know, we need to make profit and we all need to be able to derive an income. But that wasn't the metric I was using to determine how successful my business was going to be. So it was really a reminder to myself, as well as to anyone else that's reading the posts that I put out there on social media platforms, to just remind yourself to gain that perspective, take a step back, have a deep breath, and just remember what you're comparing yourself to is what you're seeing online. But is that actually what's important to you? So I was sitting there at that particular week thinking, I've achieved nothing in the business launch for the last, you know, nine, 10 months since Collective Law has been trading purely because I wasn't hitting the same success metrics as other people. So making a list of that sort really helped me to regain that perspective and remind myself that actually my metrics are different, but I have achieved so much in in this period of time. Um, So it's a self-reminder more than anything else, but then equally to remind others that there's highs and lows and everything in between but success is a direction. And as long as you're going in the right direction, you will reach that end goal. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, it's, it's so important that you do the inner work that you've done. You know, you really are, you know, value driven, you know, what's important to you, not getting stuck in this comparison game. And I think, you know, it's Gary Vee, who a lot of people know who are active on, on social media, talks a lot about, we need to change the narrative. You know, success is waking up in the morning and feeling good. You know, feeling good in yourself, feeling genuinely happy. If that means you're earning 50 million a year or 50,000 or 25,000 or whatever, whatever your business is doing, if you're genuinely feeling good and good inside, that should be a core, core metric to all of us. Because, you know, we've seen the mental health crisis. We've been through so many things in the world, you know, a pandemic so much more. It's time to actually really do that in a work that clearly you've done to ensure that, you know, you can bring back that more happy nature to your jobs to your livelihoods and everything else and it kind of tends to lead now to the last question i have for you today where you were touching on a lot of this advice but i want to kind of ask a little bit more what would be your advice for other soon-to-be legal entrepreneurs out there what would be your advice if they're looking to be more diverse and inclusive Really just to have an open mindset, to be honest. And I don't take it for granted the fact that some people struggle with any aspect of EDI initiatives purely because it's still a very new topic, in my opinion. It's something which should have been discussed for a long time. But the reality is it's only recently come to the surface and become much more of an open topic of discussion. So I can't necessarily blame people for not always understanding what needs to be done or how to tackle certain things. The only thing I can really say is it's a learning process. And step one is wanting to actually learn and having that willingness and that open mindset to look into these sorts of issues and think, you know, how can I make sure that the work that I'm doing or the business that I'm running is actually diverse and inclusive? And even if you are diverse and inclusive, there probably will be ways you can enhance that even more. So it's not a one stop shop or an end goal. It's a complete journey and process in itself, which there's so much you can continue to improve on. But the first step is definitely wanting to realize the need and the importance of having a diverse and inclusive business or workforce. And then finding the best way to achieve that overall. Now, obviously, there's loads of courses out there and loads of things that can be done um, from an educational perspective to really touch on these topics. But from my experience, some of the simple things can be 
talking to people from different backgrounds. If you have staff members um, that fall under the um, diversity inclusion brackets in terms of being from different ethnic backgrounds or having learning disabilities or anything of that nature at all, take advantage of their needs first by speaking to them firsthand and asking them, how can you as an employer or as a business owner help them firsthand to improve their experience of working within your particular business? Um, so really, sometimes the answers are right in front of you or on your own doorstep. You just need to be able to seize that moment of opportunity and actually have that very frank discussion. And it can be daunting at times. You know, you often think, oh, I don't want to offend someone. I don't want to say something insensitive. But I think as long as your intention is right and you're very open about why you're having this conversation with someone, um, it's usually more often than not completely understood. And people are more than willing to share insights and experiences of what they find to be helpful or unhelpful and that's a really great starting place to be honest yeah no and i think it's a really great advice and, and what a wonderful way to to wrap up today's discussion which i've absolutely thoroughly enjoyed and if our listeners which i'm sure they will would like to know more about your career or indeed collective law solicitors where can they find out more feel free to shout out any social media handles web links we'll also share them with this episode for you too Perfect. So I'm most prominent on Instagram and LinkedIn. So I've got business pages under Collective Law Solicitors and then under my own name of Sana Sadiq across both platforms as well. And then Collective Law Solicitors also has its own website, which is for the law firm and the business itself, where there's a lot of information about family law. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much, Sana. It's been an absolute pleasure hosting you on the show. So from all of us here on the Legally Speaking podcast, wishing you lots of continued success with your firm and career. But for now, from all of us, over and out. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you like the content here, why not check out our world-leading content and collaboration hub, the Legally Speaking Club, over on Discord. Go to our website, www.legallyspeakingpodcast.com for the link to join our community there. Over and out.